You shall not commit adultery. Happy Father's Day. Seems strange, doesn't it? You thought I might have planned it this way. Well, by way of introduction, since this seems like an odd thing for us to do on Father's Day, I'd like to give five very brief and quick disclaimers. Disclaimer number one. This was not intentional by me. I did not think, oh, Father's Day is going up. Let's make sure we're doing the Ten Commandments on that day. But I don't think it was accidental. We as a church are committed to what's called expository preaching. It means we take sections of Scripture, maybe whole books or the Ten Commandments, and we just work through them. And God's providence, as we started this series, we're on the Seventh Commandment on Father's Day. Disclaimer number two. This message, I believe, is for everyone, not just for fathers or husbands. Even though a case could be made, if you look into the tenses and language of our two key passages, Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. That is written in the masculine tense, so in in a sense, it's addressing the men. And then if you remembered earlier when Juliana read for us Matthew chapter 5, did you notice that it says, look lustfully at a woman? It's again masculine. It's, it's geared toward men. So it, I could very easily take this sermon and these texts and say, see, God's word has inspired that men, I hammer you this morning with these commands. I don't think that that's the right way to approach these scriptures. First of all, because it's likely that these laws, all of them, would have just been written to men in general just because that's what they did. Secondarily, it could be because God's wanting to protect women. And so I think that there's a sense to which God's not just thinking about men, but he's thinking about the people who are being abused. Because do we really need to take a vote this morning and say, hey, who's used violence and force and desires in the heart to exploit and abuse women? It's pretty consistent through human history. So, I don't think we should read the scriptures and think that this is only about men. It is also geared toward women. Our previous scripture reading in Proverbs chapter 5, who was the wise father of wisdom warning the son to be aware of? The adulterous woman. The Bible is not thinking, well, this is just a man's problem. Men, you, you need to listen. Wives, you can tune out. Ladies, you can just leave. I'm well aware that women struggle with lusts and temptations in the same way that men do. I think it is a shame when churches, Christians, men act like this is just their problem. Furthermore, I think that this message is for everyone because it is for Christians, it is for non-Christians. I'm going to primarily be thinking about and talking to Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you don't understand the message of the Bible, I want you to know that you're kind of on an inside scoop of what Christians think about these issues. And because of that, it may seem a little offensive. It might seem a little invasive, like, why? Why does God and Jesus want to know so much about our private lives? 
I hope that you'll have open hearts and open ears to hear that this is not just a private matter. This message is for everyone, men, women, married, single, adults, and children. Yes, children. Disclaimer number three, this is for children? Yes, I purposely did not ask all of the children to be dismissed because I'm not planning to be extremely graphic in this message. I'm going to be using the words intimacy and more particularly physical intimacy to refer to the activity that I think you adults know that I'm referring to. But I don't think we should limit it just to that one action that you have in your mind when I say intimacy or physical intimacy. As we'll see in this message, there is more to than just this one external act. And so therefore, don't limit your thinking in this command to, well, I didn't do that, so therefore I must not be guilty. Disclaimer number four. My hope is that this message will be full of balance. I'd like to explain God's law. That's the text in front of us. You shall not commit adultery. I think many of us should hear God's law and feel guilty this morning and shameful for the ways that we have acted. But a greater shame would be if you didn't walk out of here with hope, with grace, and know about the forgiveness found in Jesus. I think that these issues are theologically deep, but I also would hope to be pastorally helpful in my comments. My hope is that we will rejoice together as we look at this issue in the beauty of God's creation, but that we will also weep at the devastation of the way we have distorted it with our sin. My hope and aim is for balance in these ways. If I'm not, then the error is on me because I believe God's word is full of this kind of balance. And finally, fifthly, my last disclaimer So I'm going to use three images to outline my thoughts this morning, my comments and explanations of these issues in God's Word. So here they are, three images. Fire, food, and birds. Wait, where's the third F? It's okay. Birds will make more sense when we get there. Fire, food, and birds. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Exodus chapter 20. On page 61 of these black Bibles around you, I'm going to read all ten commandments. Starting in verse 1. After they've been saved, after they've been rescued, already set free from slavery, how are people who are already free supposed to live? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Image number one. Remember it? Fire. I'm not going to explain immediately what this image means, but all my comments are going to lead up to hopefully you getting, oh, I see. What I'll first do is help you understand that all of these Ten Commandments can be taken both positively and negatively. So, in other words, have you ever flipped the commandments to their opposite? The first two commandments, have no other gods, have no idols. That's the negative sense. Do not have other gods. Do not worship and bow down to idols. What's the positive sense? Do obey, honor, bow down, and have Yahweh as your God. Do embrace him. Do love him. Do not take the Lord's name in vain is commandment number three. What's the positive side of that commandment? Honor his name. Rejoice in it. Love it. Cherish it. Treat it as special. Commandment number four is a positive command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So negatively, don't break the Sabbath. Don't make your seventh day of the week just an ordinary, normal day. It's to be set apart. So don't do that. Positively, in the fifth commandment, we're told to honor your father and mother. So negatively, you could say, don't disrespect your parents. Don't disobey your parents. Last week, we saw do not murder What's the flip side to not murdering? Protecting, preserving, promoting life. So spend your days helping life on this earth flourish. That's the positive command. So that brings us to commandment number seven. Have you figured it out yet? How would you flip this command to its negative? From its negative to its positive. You shall not commit adultery. Therefore, I think we could easily say protect and promote the sanctity of marriage. Positively, we should promote, protect, care about marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be kept pure. By all, not just married people. Everyone collectively in this room, this message is for all of us. We should all positively honor marriage and keep the marriage bed pure, pursue purity in marriage. But notice that Hebrews, nor any of the commands in the Bible, tell us to keep the marriage bed empty. Now, why is that? Because I think you could flip the seventh commandment like this. It says, do not commit adultery. So therefore, do commit acts of love and physical intimacy in marriage. Do. Do those acts in the context of covenant marriage. Do you all remember the first two pages of the Bible? We just studied them not too long ago as a church. We went through the book of Genesis. 
Do you remember the first command that we hear from God's mouth in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful and multiply. Do. Positively, this is a good thing. This is a way for promoting and preserving and having life flourish. This is not something to be embarrassed about. This is not something that we should feel ashamed of. In fact, in page number three of the Bible, the shame is when they cover themselves up. And the goodness that was very good was when they were uncovered. Who should we give credit to the way our bodies were made? The hormones and desires that lead to intimacy. Are those bad? Did God mess up? Or was that, oh, that was part of the fall, wasn't it? No. Nowhere in the Bible do we get that indication whatsoever. Your desires for intimacy are actually given to you by God. Like, is anyone sitting here thinking, "That's, that's a good thought. That's an encouraging truth. Churches talk too much about, don't do it. I'm telling you, yes, the Bible says do it. The anatomical body parts that God gave men and women to make them distinct and unique. Was that something where like God wasn't looking and Satan snuck in and no, no. This was not like stop that, get get off of each other. He said no, be fruitful and multiply. And God saw this was very good. Proverbs chapter 5 was read just before we opened up Exodus 20 here. And if you turn with me to Proverbs 5, I think it's really important for us to see the way the Old Testament thinks about adultery. In Proverbs 5, Natasha read for us the first 14 verses, but the chapter doesn't end there. And here's one way to think about what I'm trying to say. I get the impression at times... I grew up going to church, and I get the, time, the impression at times that Christians only read verses 1 through 14 of Proverbs, of chapter 5. That the message is, stay away from adultery. Big no, big X. And what they don't do is continue reading the rest of the chapter. So what is one of the ways that you and I should be thinking about the seventh commandment? Well, the positive side of it. If the first 14 verses were stay away, don't do it, look at verse 15 and following. Do drink water from your own cistern. That would be your own spouse. Flowing water from your own well. Don't go to other women. Enjoy your own wife. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for you yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. So that's why I was saying that these water imageries, these cisterns are speaking about the wife. She is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let the breasts fill, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Do you get the message? Enjoy your wife, husbands. 
One of the ways you stay away from the adulterous woman is to be intoxicated with your wife, intoxicated by her love. If we keep reading through the Old Testament and we stay in the wisdom literature, do you all know that there's an entire book of the Bible all about two lovers? It's called Song of Songs, or sometimes referred to as Song of Solomon. It is the song of all songs. That's what it means. Song of songs. It's like the holy of holies. It's the most holy place. Well, this is the best of all love songs. And it's right in the middle of your Bible. Now, I could read, if I wanted to be more graphic, several sections of this love poetry. If you've not read it before, you should know that you should not read it with your children if they're a certain age. Jewish young men were not allowed to read it, or young women. So I won't read you those explicit passages. Plus, some of it is a bit antiquated. In other words, some of you men might be like, oh, wow, there's love poetry in the Bible? I could be both biblical and a ladies' man. But you need to realize that it's several thousand years old, so if you just start ripping words out at times, you might realize that didn't go as I thought it would. When you tell your lady, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. They've come up from the washing. All of them have their twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Now, ladies, when you hear that, you may not be too flattered when you hear your man not only using that poet, poet, poetic language, but then when you realize, oh, he's basically praising her that she has clean teeth and they're all there. <laughs> your teeth are like a flock of sheep. They're clean and washed and none of them are missing. That's what it says. So, men, I don't think... You should just quickly grab for Song of Solomon and Song of Songs and rip it for your own use. But there are parts of Song of Songs that I do want to read to you. This is actually the text I'm going to use later for Navir and Micah's wedding today. It's from chapter 8. It says in verse 6, Set as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If man offered love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Brothers, that's good. Use it. It's a good word. Baby, my love for you is as strong as death. My jealousy for you is as fierce as the grave. It's like a fire that not even rushing waters or a giant tsunami can wash out. I think that'll translate over. What do you ladies think? In other words, intimacy, the climactic moment of Song of Songs, chapter 8, is the intimacy between two lovers with a passionate and powerful love. And what's the image? It's a fire. It's a good fire. Fire's good, isn't it? Or is it dangerous? Well, the answer is yes. Fire is both good and dangerous. You can cook with fire. You can get warm by fire. 
It can give light. Fires are fun. They're good for marshmallows. But they're dangerous. But they're only dangerous when they're not contained. So fire is good in the fireplace. That's great. Fire is not so good when it's on the carpet in the living room floor. Not so great. Do you see the point? Our first image this morning is that of fire, that the love that God has given us between man and woman and between us and him is spoken of as a fire that can't be quenched. And this intimacy, this powerful, great love should be rejoiced in. It should be pursued. You were made for this. You were made to love and be loved. It is not a bad thing. In fact, in the New Testament, when we pick up this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, married couples are actually commanded to regularly have rhythms of physical intimacy. It reads this way. Because of the temptation of immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I told you this was a good Father's Day message. You were commanded, husbands, to not deprive your wife. And wives, you were not commanded, you were commanded not to deprive your husbands. Some of you know that my mentor that really spent a good deal of time investing in me and I did an internship with him in Washington, D.C. His name's Mark Dever. And he's a pastor of a church there. I'd never heard of Mark Dever before until I heard a message he gave at John Piper's pastors or it was a John Piper's national conference. And it was on this issue, but from a perspective historically of Puritans, because Mark Dever did his doctoral thesis work on Puritans. And so in that message, for the very first time, me getting exposed to Mark Dever, I heard that Puritans would use this command in 1 Corinthians 7 and do church discipline if you did not obey this command in your house. So now you know why I was so eager to go follow Mark Dever. Like, well, that sounds good. How about more church discipline? You know, like, all kidding aside, I want you to see the beauty this morning of marriage. Intimacy and love. It is powerful. It is a fire. And God wants it to not be snuffed out. It is to be contained within its proper context, which is marriage. And when it is not contained in its proper context, it wreaks havoc. It destroys lives and marriages and families. It's at this point of the message, I could just pause and pick up any recent news articles Books, stories, personal testimonies, even from members of this church. Do we need to hear another story about how this issue has wreaked havoc on marriages, families, and individuals? I don't think I need to. I don't think I need to lead us in a tear-filled, emotionally jerked message. I think we all know, we've all seen, even personally, Failure to keep the fire in its fireplace burns down our lives, simply put. 
So let's consider our second image, food. Now that might sound strange, but what I want to do with this image is answer the question, why? Why is God commanding us to not commit adultery? Why is it bad? Why should intimacy be kept only for marriage and forbidden anywhere else? And I'm going to use C.S. Lewis to help us out for a second. This is from his book, Mere Christianity, on the chapter revolving around intimacy. And he says, the the monstrosity of intimacy outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, namely the physical one, from all other kinds of union, which were meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there is anything wrong about these physical pleasures. That's what we just considered with the fire image. There's nothing wrong about these physical pleasures. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, it means you should not isolate this pleasure and try and get it by itself any more than you should try and get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting your food. Imagine someone chewing things and spitting them out again. That's the second image. What if you started to treat intimacy the way what if, sorry, what if you started to treat food the way that we as a culture and as humans have treated intimacy? Lewis says, there is nothing to be ashamed of enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if you made food the main interest of your life and you spent all your time looking at pictures and dribbling and smacking your lips as you stared at them. Get that picture in your mind. That's what it looks like when a fire is burning things down in your life. A person staring at pictures of food, drooling. Someone at the dinner table chewing their food, enjoying its taste on the tongue, and then grossly spitting it back out instead of actually using it for what it was meant for, your nourishment. See, I think Lewis is helping us see why this is wrong. God made physical intimacy to be enjoyed in marriage so that it could be contained and protected and used the way he meant it to be. If you start trying to isolate it out of its context and take the fire out of the fireplace, then you distort it. We become less human when we do this. We dehumanize others when we look at them in these ways, when we talk about people in these ways, and when we treat them in these ways. Take something that was made for the purpose of loving and giving yourself to the other. Did you notice that's what 1 Corinthians 7 said? Husbands, your favorite part of that verse should not be, hey lady, don't deprive me of my rights. If that's your perspective, then you have completely missed the whole point of marriage. Your perspective in this particular instance of intimacy is your body's not your own, and so you can use the instruments of your body to serve your spouse. Use it in that way. Similarly, wives, you can use your body to serve your husband. It is not about you getting yours. It's my rights. It's what it says. It is about you using your body for the sake of loving others. 
So when you become such a foodie that you don't use what food was made for and all you do is spit it out every time you eat it, and that would be the same thing, taking the physical intimacy of marriage and using it for your own fleshly pleasures and not the nourishment of your marriage and your soul. The physical act is only one part of the overarching theme of intimacy. I think everyone misses this. I think our culture misses this. I think guys struggle with this. I think girls struggle with this. The physical act should be the crescendoing effect after days and weeks of love and service and care, affectionate words, practical service around the home. It starts with your heart. It moves to your hands. This is why we had Jesus read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Some of you might be deceived into thinking that you are doing good in obeying the seventh commandment because you have not committed the external act of having physical intimacy with someone other than your spouse. But Jesus gets to the heart of this command, demands of us that we not just look at the external act. Sinful lust can rule in your heart and you never once commit external adultery. Some of you could be here today and say, I've not done that ever in my entire life. But if you're honest with yourself right now, your thoughts, your, your attitudes, your desires are full and sick of sinful lusts. I've had many conversations, many conversations with men this church, other churches, other ministries, where they said, nope, not looking at pornography, not, not committing adultery. I say, do you ever look at women that you work with or go to school with in an inappropriate manner? Not just look. Now, make sure we're getting this word right. Make sure we're getting the idea right. The idea is not just a look. It's a lustful intent, as the ESV translates it. It's not just a glance. It's not just even seeing somebody physically. It's a stare. It's a gaze. It's a longing deep within your heart. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to help one another with obeying the commands of the Bible... We need to make sure we're understanding that you could do this by looking at fully clothed people on your Facebook or Instagram accounts. You could do this by watching inappropriate videos and movies in the theater. But it's not pornography. Really? Isn't it kind of the same? One was just more clothed than the other. The issue Jesus drives home is our hearts. 
And when we think this way, we degrade ourselves and the people that we look at in these ways. We make them selfish objects of our own pleasure, as if those other image bearers of God were made for you. That's the devastating fire that burns down your own soul. Jesus does not want you to just obey external, obedient rules, check off the box. He would like to have you pursue purity in your heart. That's why, as he gives these commands, he started out by saying, Blessed is the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, happy, how joyful you will be when you understand the ways of Jesus' kingdom and society and people. A people that pursue purity for the sake of knowing and experiencing the goodness of God. So how are you doing with this? Is there any of us here that would say, yeah, I'm not an adulterer? Even in the Jesus sense of it? Even in your heart of hearts? How many of us are feeling very shameful or guilty? What do you do with that shame? Try harder? Commit again? Never again, God, this time. Purity for life. Never again will I look at someone in that demeaning, degrading way. One of the turning points Turning moments, turning point moments in my life was when I was hearing a message on Matthew 5, and it wasn't necessarily because it was about my own personal issue of lust. It was because as I sat there in church that day, I heard 10 tips on how to be pure, and I didn't for one second hear anything about forgiveness or the cross or Jesus. I didn't hear anything about how God demands purity, but he grants and gives purity through his Holy Spirit as he changes your heart. I felt no hope. I felt anger because I knew that that's not the message of Jesus. I knew that that was not the gospel. I knew that that message was true, but it was so radically incomplete that it changed my life forever. In fact, I will tell you that it was from that day that I vowed that I would never preach a sermon again without telling people about Jesus. So you are all here today in part because on that day, God through his Holy Spirit said, that's not right. Preach Christ and him crucified. Let them know that there is hope. So we saw that there's fire. We saw that there is food. And lastly, birds. If you want an F, then you can go with flying birds. How do we get our hearts to change? Okay. Sounds good, Pastor Phil. Jesus wants more than just external obedience. He wants people changed from the inside. How does that happen? Martin Luther this time. You cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. You can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. 
In other words, you can't stop temptations. Temptations will come. That's a normal part of living in this life. You can't stop them. You can stop staring. You can stop the gaze, the meditation, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth look. Seeing a beautiful man or woman walking down the street. Oh, it's a beautiful man or woman. Not sinful. You might be tempted to look. But when you turn your head, have you seen this before? Ooh. And you stare. That's the difference. James 1, let me remind you, says that no one, when they are tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So your temptations, they are sure to come. They are not from God. Each person, when they are tempted, is being lured and enticed by their own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not believe the lie that this is just a private matter in your heart. It will stay in your heart and linger in your heart if you do nothing about it. If you do not allow God's grace to come into your life and change it. If you don't switch your gaze from inappropriate looking at people to the gaze of the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it will lead to actions of adultery. Exactly what James 1 says. We can't say, oh, it's a private issue. Jesus cares about getting to the heart of it because he knows that by changing your heart, it will change your actions. God will not ever bring you temptation. God only will bring you the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the word of hope that you heard from Juliana after we confessed our sins. No temptation has overtaken you, only that which is common to man. And God is faithful the theme of our whole service. Great is thy faithfulness. And God is faithful that you will not be tempted beyond your ability. So many of you don't believe that. So many struggling Christians do not believe what I just read. God is faithful. You will never be tempted by God and you will never be tempted beyond your ability. You can prevent your head from gazing. You can And God has not only provided the command, he has provided the means. Let me keep reading. With the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape so that you will endure the temptation. Glorious. It's what I was longing for those several years ago when I heard 10 tips on purity. A young man that was struggling and wanting to know, I need hope. Here's here's your hope. God's promise, I will provide a way of escape. You will not be tempted by me. You will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. And you will not be tempted without my help. So lastly and most importantly, what is the way of escape? How do we escape? How do we keep from our heads turning or our fingers clicking Some of you might think it's self-mutilation because Jesus says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Is that the solution? Will that solve things? Quick exercise. Nope, I don't think so. Have you done that before? You ever thought? 
You still have another hand to click the computer. You'll still have another eye to look and gaze. I never thought about it this way before. I do not say this to be crass. I think this really gets to the point. If Jesus really believed in self-mutilation, he should have named a different body part. Don't you think? I think that there could have been other parts he listed that would have really hindered people's pursuing this action. Don't commit adultery. But he's not concerned about the external. He's telling you in a hyperbolic way, exaggerating his case, take this seriously. This destroys people's lives. It destroys your own life. Do whatever you have to. It would be better for you to have a stupid phone than a phone that tempts you 24-7 every day. It would be better for you to just get rid of the internet and use a public library if that's what you have to do. It would be better, and we could go down the list, for you to never watch a single movie again and be irrelevant the rest of your life than to be tempted. Do you get my drift? Are you willing to take that kind of action in your life? Do you see the seriousness in your own heart? Because I don't believe God will provide a way of escape if you do not first humble yourself. This is the theme all through Scripture. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and He will raise you up. He will provide the way of escape. Humble yourself and not proudly think, oh, I'm, I'm okay. More specifically, Jesus wants you to choose a superior pleasure. This may seem jaw-dropping. This may seem mind-blowing. But your greatest problem is not that you desire intimacy too strongly. Your greatest problem with your sinful heart is that you do not have a desire for pure and good intimacy strong enough. Lust is not bad. Now, in English, we have associated, especially in the church, lust only with sinful intent. Jesus does not. He does not speak in English, and he only uses the word that means desire. So, Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who desires with a sinful intent... Seems to be the obvious context, right? That person is committing adultery in their heart. Having a desire is not inappropriate, number one, for intimacy on human, human-to-human earthly desires. We just made that point earlier. The fire is good in the fireplace. But some of you here today, and you might stay single the rest of your life, and you need to know that there is a desire that these human desires for intimacy physically is pointing to a greater, stronger, more intimate, more personal, more exposed, more real desire than that desire. In fact, Jesus himself lusted. Well, the good kind of lust. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. 
If you look in Luke chapter 22, on the top of page 882, in verse 14, the very last night that Jesus has with his disciples. Who's Jesus again? The God-man, tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin? Jesus, single, never married on earth. The Da Vinci Code is telling you all lies. I don't believe he married Mary or any human person. He married us, the church. And on the wedding day, this day, listen to his words. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let's read this with the way you're used to hearing those words. And he said to them, I have lusted and lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have desired to desire. I have doubly desired to eat this meal with you. That's the word that we just read in Matthew 5. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart, with desire in his heart, is committing adultery. That's the very same word, but it's repeated twice. That's why you have, I've earnestly, I have in the strongest possible way I can communicate, I have doubly desired to eat this meal with you. So the problem is not your lust. The problem is the object of your lust. The problem is that you're settling for something that is so less, so inferior to the superiority of this kind of lust, this kind of intimacy, and this kind of love. Is there anyone here that is like me that when I stumbled across this, and it wasn't this week, but years ago when I first heard this, that Jesus is telling his disciples, I have so wanted to eat this meal with you, that it does not just start to melt your heart, that the God of the universe sees us adulterous people, and he's so, not just a little bit of love, not just a little bit of desire, but he doubly desires and longs to get married to this sinful, wretched, dirty, filthy, ugly bride, us. Love so amazing, so divine. The way of escape is being laid before you. It is not just white-knuckling it. Okay, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. It is realizing that God has given you a love that is so superior to the intimacy that you're clinging, clinging to and longing for. Jesus has come in human flesh He did not ever sin. He never got married. He never had physical intimacy in the way that we think of this. And he said that one day there will be new heaven and new earth when I return and there will be no human marriages. There will only be singles for the rest of eternity. In fact, we won't be singles because we'll be married to Jesus. Therefore, all marital intimacy in the bedroom is marital intimacy that is pointing to the greater intimacy that Jesus has already accomplished for us when he had that meal and redefined the Passover and then suffered a death that he did not deserve. 
who was the most joy-filled human to ever live on the earth? Who had abundant joy, John 10.10? Who was the only human that did not degrade other men or women with stares of selfish pleasure and treated people as if they were made just for his gratification? Who was the only human that lusted and desired the right thing in the right way? And what did he do it for? He did it for you and for me to establish a new kingdom and a new society and a new covenant where people would be changed by this great love from the inside out so that you would be set free from your slavery to this sin. So believe in the power of the love of God impressed on you by the Holy Spirit. Be free to share with honesty and confession and grace And let us not be a church full of legalism and rule-keeping, but rather those that are lusting and longing for the true intimacy with God our Father through Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit. Is this what you're longing for? It's what you're longing for even if you don't even know it or admit it. Your lust is not the problem. It's the object of your lust. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for this word. The hard word that reminds us that we are sinners. The brutal reality of these words that we, all of us, should be condemned for our adultery. But we want to thank you, God, that you do not leave us there. You do not stop there. You don't end in verse 14 of Proverbs 5. You continue the story. You tell us that there's a better affection. There's a better love. There's a deeper intimacy that lasts forever. So whether we're here today and we're married or we're single or we hope to be married, whether we're a child God, I pray that each one of us will know that what we were made for was to be personally and intimately known and loved and that you have already taken that first step. Thank you, God, for the offer of grace this morning on the cross. Thank you for your body and your blood. Thank you for your such intense desire for eating that meal 2,000 years ago. Help us now as we take that meal and remember your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.